Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week, we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way, we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. There are a few things that led to the birth of this ministry. First of all, my love for God's Word. I honestly knew almost nothing about the Bible until I was nearly 30 years old, even though all the years before that, I was in church more often than most. And here's the ironic part. I not only went to church an above average number of times, but I also served in my local church an above average number of times. At about the age of eight or nine, I became what was then called an altar boy. I think today they call it altar server. Now, if you've not picked up on it with that statement, I was Catholic. That would, by the way, explain the frequency of church going. You see, the Catholic church is not one to overlook passive attendance. So in addition to regular appearances, at Sunday services among the congregation. As a child, I was an altar boy, and I did that as long as one could. Then when I turned 16, I was considered too old to be an altar boy, and I don't remember if that was my choice or theirs. Anyhow, from there, I became what the Catholic Church calls a lector, which is just a fancy Latin word for reader. Now, I chuckle when I think about this. I volunteered to read scripture, and yet I knew nothing about the Bible. On into adulthood, I started attending non-denominational, Bible-centered churches with friends, and that's when my entire outlook on the Bible changed. Now, let me be clear for a moment. The purpose of these opening remarks is not to call out the Catholic Church. That's not my intention, nor would I want to leave you with the impression that just because you don't go to Catholic Church, then you're okay. I'm telling you what I experienced. This is a personal experience. It actually doesn't matter where you go to church or even if you go to church. I would say that there is a general lack of scriptural knowledge throughout. It just so happens that we all expect that going to church would prepare us to know the Lord. But if you aren't being taught God's word, your church is failing at that. Now, with that important clarification out of the way, let me continue. Once I started hearing sermons based on God's word, I couldn't seem to get enough. So that's number one. My love for God's Word gave me a voracious appetite to study it more. And listen, it got so bad 
that eventually I even found myself studying God's word on weekdays. I didn't even know people did that. I would devour book after book, commentary after commentary. And you know what I learned? I learned that I was completely ignorant of the majesty of God's word. And you know what else I found out? I found out that I wasn't the only one. When I would start talking to people that I knew from my old, let's just call it religious life, or most anyone really, about the things that I found in God's word, they'd be just as amazed as I was. So you're saying that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 when he said from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yeah. How come I never knew that? I don't know, but it was news to me when I heard it too. It struck me that all of these things that I was discovering out of God's word were ancient. They had been around for thousands of years. Every priest, bishop, and archbishop knew about these things, or should have. But they didn't teach it to me. And I was slowly finding out that there were lots of people just like me. We loved God, despite knowing very little about Him. But we wanted to. And the most important of all my discoveries from those days was that we will never know God as much as he wants us to without his word. So I started chapel ministries. I started chapel ministries to share what I was joyfully uncovering. For instance, when I learned that Jesus was so plainly and thoroughly talked about in the Old Testament, I was completely blown away. And the more I dug, digged, I don't know, the deeper I went into that ancient collection of what I thought were strictly dusty old Jewish books, the more blown away I became. And then, when I found out about the seven feasts of Israel, well, I had to tell someone, and this series was born. Today, the day this podcast was posted, is October 20th, 2019. It's about 8 a.m. on the eastern side of the United States, and this is the last day of the wonderful and joyous Jewish festival or Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called by its Hebrew name Sukkah. At sundown this evening, the feast will come to a close here in the United States. But if you want to be on God's time, the feast will really end about six hours earlier than that. Now, why, you may ask? Well, because six hours earlier than that, it will be 6.02 local time in Jerusalem, and it will be sunset. Sunset ends the day in Israel. A new day begins one second after sunset, 6.02 p.m. local time in Jerusalem, the sun will set. And a new day 
will begin. Now, we in the Western world mark a new day at midnight. Israel does so at sunset. Now, why should it matter when the day starts and ends in Israel, you ask? Why are we marking the beginning and ending of the feast based on Jerusalem time? Well, because God has made it clear that the center of worship of him shall be in Jerusalem. So it's my opinion that that's where we should mark his timing with respect to so-called religious celebrations that he himself gave. Now, I'm certainly not dogmatic about it. I just think if God specially designated Jerusalem as his city, then we should be just as endeared with it, especially when it comes to Scripture. Now, I know you got a lot of this in part one of our series of this feast. I, I made nearly the same speech about days beginning and ending and feasts and festivals and convocations beginning and ending at sunset. It may be tedious to you, but it's biblical. And in fact, in quite a bit of contrast to our own methods, so I figured I'd do my best to drill this stuff into your head. Well, what happens if I forget all about that? It's okay. I don't think lightning bolts will come your way. I just think we should do our best to honor his way of thinking over our own. So back to the subject at hand. This is part two of another one of what I call a surprise series. It's happened a time or two around here. I start writing on a topic and it begins to grow and it begins to blossom into something much more involved than I had intended it to be. And you know, I would, you would think I would know better by now. Anyhow, today, for the second time in a row, we will be looking at the Feast of Tabernacles. As I said a moment ago, this holiday on the Jewish calendar is also very commonly referred to as Sukkah. Now, in my notes, I spelled that S-U-K-K-O-T. It's also not uncommon to see it spelled S-U-C-C-O-T-H. Now, you say, which one is right? Well, really neither. Both of these spellings are attempts to present the original word, which is in Hebrew, using our own alphabet. So it's technically phonetic. So what does Sukkah mean? Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary says Sukkah means a hut or a lair. The accepted meaning among most scholars is a booth, usually of a temporary crude constructions. That's why so many will refer to this as the Feast of Booths. Now, personally, I believe the modern meaning of this word booth, and frankly, tabernacle, is a bit of an obstacle in understanding the purpose of this feast. So let's begin this study by quoting the actual verses that give life to this celebration. I believe that will help us more than either of these English words. 
Leviticus 23:34 Speak unto the children of Israel saying the 15th day of this 7th month shall be the feast of tabernacles for 7 days unto the Lord. Now that's the introductory commandment as we found in the King James. Now let's skip down a few verses to pick up what God wants done during this 7-day feast. Verse 40 and ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in a year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there you have the reason God asked for these rather unusual objects to be built. He wanted the children of Israel, by the way, this is their feast, it's not for Christians. God wanted the children of Israel to build booths, temporary structures, made of tree branches to remind them of how God had provided for their ancestors while they were fleeing from the Egyptian army during the Exodus. Now, believe me, I want to get into more detail, but that's why these things become surprise series, because I drift off on tangents, relative tangents, though they may be. So this is where the name of the feast comes from. It is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles because of the little huts that God told them to build. Some of the more up-to-date, more contemporary English language versions of the Bible will also call this the Feast of Shelters. Now, I think I like that word best for our modern version, our modern thinking in the English language. I mean, today, when we think of a rough-hewn temporary building in the wilderness, we would call it a shelter long before we'd call it a booth or a tabernacle. You and I would never use either word, booth or tabernacle, to describe what we know to be a shelter. Hey, when I was hiking the Appalachian Trail and had to camp out when it got dark, I built a little temporary building to sleep in. Oh, do you mean a booth? What? No. A tabernacle? A tabernacle? Why would I call it a... How about a shelter? Yes, a shelter that hastily built protection from the elements after a long day of walking, I would call a shelter. So shelter is a better word for our modern thinking. Now, nonetheless, I hope you don't mind that I will continue to refer to this holiday by the more commonly known Feast of Tabernacles, since that's what the King James calls it. However, having said that, as we mentioned last time, the 
King James also calls this festival the festival of ingathering as found in Exodus 23:16 and Exodus 34:22. Now we're not going to read those, but of course you can look them up later. Last time all we did was mention the name Feast of Ingathering. This time we will get into the details and the significance of calling it the Feast of Ingathering, but not until later. So in that previous podcast, the one that was posted immediately previous to this one, we spent a great deal of time describing the ancient Talmudic ceremonies that are associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if it wasn't clear then, I will state emphatically here that those ceremonies, remember the water libation ceremony, the temple lighting ceremony, and the, the Hoshana or Hosanna Rabbah ceremony were not scriptural. Again, those are the rituals that were performed or probably more accurately termed celebrated because this was a joyous celebration. Those were the celebrations that were performed when the temple was the center of worship. And then 70 AD came, and so did Titus, the son of the Roman emperor Vespasian, and the temple was destroyed as a part of the overall attack on Jerusalem out of retribution for repeated insurrections by the Israelites against the Roman Empire's occupation of Palestine. And listen, amateur historians, please don't write me. I know there are lots of other details, but at the moment, I want to make the point that the sack of Jerusalem eliminated the only permanent center of worship God ever authorized. After 70 AD, the practice of the Hebrew religion changed from its ancient biblical origins and like almost nothing else, has impacted the daily lives of even devout Jews all the way until today. Last week, we concentrated on the past. Let us bring us a little closer to today. Now, as a testament, I believe, to the great importance of this feast to their ancestors and the great joy with which they celebrated it, modern Jews actually do a pretty good job of retaining much of the long-ago established rituals. One thing most devout and even, listen, most not-so-devout Jews know is their people's history. Jews of today are well aware of how much their forefathers loved and revered this feast. Now, it must be clear to them that this was something they wanted to hold on to, something that they wanted to repeat, something that they wanted to carry on. So as Yom Kippur ends, Jews of today, and I'll say not all of them, of course, but many observant Jewish families begin constructing booths. 
Remember God's commandment, ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's why building booths or shelters or tabernacles is a part of this feast. Now, in ancient times, the males of every tribe were required to go to Jerusalem for this feast. This is one of three pilgrim feasts. And when the men and their families arrived in the city a day or two before the feast, they would start constructing booths or tabernacles. Modern description would be a shelter. Well, that same tradition is actually followed today in a very refreshing adherence to God's word, except they don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Jewish families, prior to the beginning of this feast, will build a sukkah on their own property in preparation to use them extensively during this feast. In fact, if you lacked yard space or you lived in an apartment, you would even build the booths or shelters or tabernacles on your patio. This is and was, of course, a vital part of this feast to this day. God gave this feast as a reminder of his provision to the Israelites when they left Egypt and the people want to honor that. God told them to build booths and live in them, and this festival is given by God to memorialize that, and the people honor that. So listen to the description of the modern observance of booth building as given in the excellent book, The Feast of the Lord. We quoted this book last time. We're doing it again today. It's, it's a major source book for these lessons. Listen to this, quote, The booths are made with no fewer than three walls covered with intertwined branches. Now we're going to get into these branches a little bit more in a moment. The types of branches actually are very important to the modern celebration. So continuing, quote, The roofs are thatched so that there is more shade than sunlight during the day, but sparsely enough to allow the stars to be seen at night. Now remember, light is an ever-present, ever-important symbol during this feast. So the description goes on to say, quote, inside, that means inside the sukkah or booth or shelter. Inside, they are decorated with colorful harvest fruits and vegetables. Now, that's the general look of these structures as they are today. And each day during the feast, modern Jewish families perform several holiday rituals. They eat meals and even sometimes sleep in these booths. As we stated in the description, the walls and roofs of each of these booths were constructed or at least covered with branches. But one could not just go out into the woods and find any old leafy branch. Leviticus 23.40 And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now to the rabbis, 
This verse reads like a construction punch list that includes very distinct materials, four very distinct materials. In fact, they refer to these as the four kinds or the four species, and they do so to this very day. So let's go back over these. There is the boughs of goodly trees, which are interpreted, since scripture is not specific, to mean the yellow citron tree. In the Hebrew, etrog or esrog, the fruit of which looks like a, like a bumpy lemon. Next, you see there, it says branches of palm trees. Well, today, modern Jews use long branches of the date palm. You'll hear Jewish people refer to this as the lulav. Then we come to another non-specific mention of boughs of thick trees. Now, the original word that gets translated into the English word thick is avath. Avath means intertwine. Therefore, the Jewish authorities have interpreted this to mean what we may call leafy, meaning dense or thick with leaves, and therefore they've chosen the myrtle tree. Myrtle tree branches are used, and in the modern celebrations are referred to as hadras. So three of the four kinds or species are etrog, which are the branches of the lemon-like citron tree, lulav, or date palms, and the hadras, or leafy, thick, dense myrtle tree branches. So that's three. And then finally, the fourth, we have the far less enigmatic willows of the brook, which, you guessed it, are the branches of a willow tree. So those are the four kinds or four species as mentioned in scripture that are commonly used in this celebration. Now, quickly, as a side note, I want to mention that at some point, a disagreement arose between the leadership in the Jewish community, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, big surprise, as to how to use the four kinds or four species that are mentioned in Scripture. The Pharisees said they were to be carried and waved about in praise and joy. And the Sadducees said, no, no, that's what God wants us to make the booths out of. And you know, actually a good argument could be made for either position, so they decided to compromise, and both were allowed. All four materials now are found in the booths, and all four materials now are held and used in worship during services. Now, earlier I mentioned that modern Jews make considerable efforts to carry on the traditional, and by that I mean the ancient traditional practices of this feast. Today, the festive procession circles the center platform where the Torah scroll is placed, much like the altar was circled in the days of the temple as we described in the last podcast. Each evening at very specific times, candles are lit inside or near the booth, the sukkah, and later on after festive meals, there's even singing and dancing 
all of this in commemoration of the ancient Simchat Beit Hashoeva, which you all remember means the rejoicing of the house of water drawing. That is the description of the modern celebration of booths, of tabernacles, of shelters, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, to me, one of the most remarkable facts of human history is that the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. Now, I'm certain that a sizable number of Jewish people find it remarkable that I worship Jesus. The truth is, I believe, that most Jewish people don't know enough about Jesus. Most Jewish people are simply willing to accept the word and scholarship of their leaders rather than spend time checking for themselves. And listen, don't get me wrong, as much as that sounds like harsh and unfair criticism of Jews, most of you regulars know that I've levied the exact same criticism against most Christians. All of us, Jews and Christians, must act as if these things are important to us. Listen, in our modern world, we have unprecedented access to knowledge. Scripture is written in every major language on earth and some not so major. There is abundant scholarship and analysis of what's written in the Bible. It just takes work. It takes time. It takes commitment. And let's face it, it's easier to be told what something means than to figure it out for ourselves. The Jewish people have relied on their leadership to tell them that Jesus was not the Messiah. And I have a difficult time believing that any objective investigation of the scriptural facts not interpretations, not Talmudic additions, simply the Bible. And let me emphasize, both Old and New Testament could not lead to a complete reversal of a theory of God that keeps Jesus out of it. If you study both the Old and New Testament, you will discover that Jesus is the Messiah and among many other things, the seven feasts of Israel will tell you that. Let me say, to me, the Feast of Tabernacles is really one of the most lovely examples of God's undying eternal love for his people, the Jews. No wonder the Jewish people consider this to be their most joyous feast, because often the future, its celebration will reveal that God, despite their serial infidelity, never intended to turn them completely away. He never intended to abandon them, despite how they treated him. And the Feast of Tabernacles, when it's fulfilled, will show that. You know, understanding the Bible is not so complicated as you've been told. Being thrilled with the Bible is not so complicated as you've been told. There's really only one obstacle standing in the way of being completely satisfied with God's Word. 
All it takes to make joyous sense of Genesis through to Malachi, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, is to realize it all speaks of one thing, Jesus Christ. The critic refuses to either see that or admit that, so that feels like he has plenty of things to criticize because it seems disjointed. It seems unconnected. If you take Jesus out of it, it's very easy to criticize. It makes no sense. Then the skeptical modern thinking churchgoer has the same problem. Sure, they show up most Sundays, but they won't succumb to all of the primitive nonsense. They don't believe Jesus really ever lived, at least not how the Bible says he did. And so they have a lot of things to roll their eyes at. There are plenty of opportunities, if you take Jesus out of it, to exercise mental and cultural superiority when the word of God is read. If you take Jesus out of it, sure, it sounds like nonsense. All of that would be different if they just believed that the Bible speaks of Christ. The whole Bible speaks of Christ. You know, the gospel tells a story that not long after the crucifixion of Jesus, a couple of disciples were talking back and forth about the events of the past few days. They seemed confused. They seemed hurt. They seemed lost. They just couldn't make sense of what had happened three days prior. And then Jesus came along and he cleared the whole matter up himself. And do you know how he did that? Let's read it. Luke 24, 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Hey, why are you confused, fellas? If you believed I was the Christ, then you should have expected this. Their obstacle to making sense out of the crucifixion was that they didn't believe Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, was the anointed, was the Son of God. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Therefore, Jesus went back to the word and told them, now starting at Moses and then continuing on to the prophets, in other words, the whole scripture, start at Moses, then continue through to the prophets and then put me in there and then you'll understand everything. When you make me the center of what you read in the word, then it will make all the difference. Did it work? We'll listen to how those two summarize their conversation thereafter. Luke 24, 32, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, first of all, I want you to notice that they here admit that the scripture was effectively closed to them because they had never seen Christ in it. To them, that meant scripture was closed. 
They knew of the Christ, the Messiah, because they heard about it every time they went to the synagogue, and they must have known that Jesus was special. Otherwise, why follow him? Everyone else in the group of followers thought he was special, so they must have too. It's just that they didn't realize how important he was to Scripture until he himself opened it up to them and showed that he was the Messiah. And once that happened, their hearts burned within them. You know what that means? They wanted more. They desired more. Isn't that how we describe desire? Don't we describe it as a burning heart? That's what they were feeling, but not until they saw Christ in Scripture. What's your point? Until you see that this entire book speaks of our Lord, then you'll never come to full, satisfying, heart-burning knowledge of Him. Zechariah 14, 16. Listen very closely. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, Jehovah of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14.16 is a prophetic picture of the future. Zechariah 14.16 is a prophetic picture of what Christians call the millennium. The millennium will be the thousand years on this earth where the kingdom of heaven will be established. And it came to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. What king? The king that's ruling the kingdom of heaven. All the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, Jehovah of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And what will they be doing during the millennium? They will be worshiping the king, the one who is ruling, and they will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The king and the Feast of Tabernacles are tied together just like the king tied them together during his lifetime. You know who the king is? It's Jesus. When Jesus was on this earth, he tied himself to the Feast of Tabernacles because he knew that there was coming a day, and it's still a day in our future, when he will be sitting on his throne and all the nations will come up and worship him and they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. All seven of the feasts of Israel will be fulfilled in their time. Now, if you've been with us when we've talked about this before, you will know that this fulfillment is already unfolding. The first four of the seven have been fulfilled in their time. We don't have time to show that. 
And then the next three are awaiting their fulfillment in their time. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of those three which have not been fulfilled. And Zechariah shows us that it will be fulfilled off in our future and it will be tied to the king. The Feast of Tabernacles will be celebrated by every nation on earth someday, and the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles will be associated with the worship of the king as he said it would. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, Jehovah of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Shall I tell you again who that king is? Listen, I guarantee when on the road to Emmaus, Jesus started at Moses and then proceeded to the prophets, expounding to those disciples all the things concerning himself, he included this passage. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, Jehovah of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah was a prophet. And Jesus' teaching that day on the road to Emmaus included all the prophets, right? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus quoted Zechariah, I guarantee it. But why the millennium? Why does it have to wait until the millennium? Now listen very carefully. Remember when we started this series, I told you that this feast went by another name. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is its subtlety. God's word is so subtly beautiful and is in complete contrast to human reasoning. When we want to make a point, we just get louder and louder. We get more and more obnoxious and more and more obvious until we feel we've reached a consensus of understanding. We have megaphones and loudspeakers and marches on Washington and massive sit-ins and caustic rhetoric and sweat and spit and tears and tirades. Not God. He just quietly makes a profound statement and then sits back and lets it take root. When God's word referred to this as the feast of ingathering, I think it was one of the most important things ever said about the seventh and last feast. God intended this to be a harvest festival. Now, I'm a city guy, born and raised, so I always thought a harvest festival went on during the harvest. Doy, that doesn't make any sense. You can't have a harvest festival while the work of harvesting is going on. Harvest festivals, listen very carefully, harvest festivals 
happened after all labor related to the harvest has ceased. When the ingathering has been completed, then you have harvest festivals. Isaiah 27, 12. And in that day, now, most of the time when you hear that in that day, it refers to the day of the Lord, or we may call it the millennium, the time when the, it's a part of the, the millennium is part of the day of the Lord. There are other parts, but just so you know, in that day, in Isaiah 27, 12 means the millennium. And in that day, Shall the Lord thresh from the channel of the river unto the river of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O children of Israel. Now, Isaiah 27, 12 is written in a very specific way. It's written to put in your mind an agricultural activity. And you know what? agricultural activity that is to be? Harvesting. But this is a very interesting way to harvest. Now you see the word thresh there. And by the way, I read that passage from the Geneva Bible because it's a, a little bit more accurate than the King James. So in Isaiah 27, 12, the word thresh means to hit something with a stick, meaning knocking the fruit off with a stick one by one in order to gather it. And the impression given there in Isaiah is a purposeful gathering over a great distance. And in that day shall the Lord thresh from the channel of the river unto the river of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O children of Israel. Listen to this, verse 13. In that day also shall the great trump. And by the way, that's a shofar. If you've listened to our previous podcasts on the feasts, that should give you the chills. In that day shall also the great shofar be blown, and they shall come which perished in the land of Asher, and they that were chased into the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. When the Messiah has come, and he set up his kingdom, he will then gather all the children of Israel from wherever they are to return to him. And once this is done, once all that gathering has been completed, once the labor of the ingathering is complete, everyone will celebrate and worship. And there shall be unending, unbridled joy Feast of Tabernacles level joy. Isn't it just like God to make the most joyous of all celebrations the very last one? At that time, the work of the Lord will be finished. 
The great harvester, by the way, his business is harvesting, ours is seed sowing. Once the harvester has completed his work, once the harvest is complete, all of God's beloved children will be once again and permanently this time in one place. And really the only proper location for the permanent place is at the feet of the king. Once all of God's children are at the feet of the king, there will be great merrymaking, great celebrating like there's never been before or since. Great Feast of Tabernacles joy. Now that's a party that will be fun to watch. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.